Well, it seems to happen a little bit earlier every year, right? Uh, I was in Home Depot a couple weeks ago, very beginning of October, and lo and behold, what did I see? Christmas trees. Christmas decorations were already out. I, and I was like, wow. I mean, I mean, I remember when it was crazy when it was the middle of November and they were putting stuff up, and now we're beginning of October, and uh, it's up. And, um, you know, I, I understand uh, stores want to sell stuff. They want to uh, be able to make money. That's what they're in the business to do. And people are going to buy this early, so why not put it out this early? I, I get it. Um, um, but it's a little bit hard to take, you know, especially those of us like myself who love Thanksgiving. You know, I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is probably my favorite holiday. Um, number one, you get to eat. And you got you got excuses to eat all you want. And, and number two, uh, family. I mean, the, the Thanksgiving probably, I think in my experience at least, more so than any other holiday, you have family there. And so it, it's always been a very special time for me. So just the fact that it's kind of ignored and jumped over to get to Christmas sometimes irritates me, which makes my our sermon series that we're starting today a little bit hard to take because we're starting my Christmas sermon series today. What? Yeah. Yeah, we're starting with, we're starting with uh, this. I, I've never done this this early before. I almost always wait until at least Thanksgiving before I do uh, the Christmas uh, services, the, the Christmas focus, the Christmas emphasis, that sort of thing. Um, but as I was thinking about where I was, go, where I was going next, and, and uh, we were finishing up 1 Corinthians, as we did last week, uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. Uh, last week, we focused upon lament. And hopefully, hopefully that was a moving time for you as we, we came together and we just acknowledged that, that God is good, uh, but life isn't always. And um, uh, hopefully we, we were able to deal with uh, some proper ways to, to deal with the griefs that we experienced. Um, but thinking where I was going to go next, I didn't want to start a series just to stop a month in, you know, uh, to, to focus in on the Christmas uh, emphasis. And so I was talking to uh, to Will, and, and he says, why don't you do a series on the prophecies of God and, of Jesus' first coming in the Old Testament and culminate with his coming at Christmas? And I'm like, well, dang, son, that's a great idea. And so that's what, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, we're going to start today. We're going to begin in Genesis with the fall, and we're going to move through some of the key prophecies concerning Christ's first coming throughout the Old Testament what they tell us about him, what they tell us about ourselves, what they tell us about our relationship and how we can better understand that. And hopefully by the time we get uh, to Christmas morning, which by the way, this year is on a Sunday. Okay, I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, we will be having services. I've, I've never understood churches dismissing Christmas morning for worship. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me, but hey, whatever. Um, <laughs> whatever floats their boat. We're going to have services, okay? Um, but, um, you know, um, hopefully by the time we get there, uh, we'll have a, just a, a thoroughgoing understanding of, of what, what that day means and what exactly was part of God's plan. And, and I think there is an appropriateness to this in that, you know, the plan for Christmas started before the foundation of the earth. And so starting before Halloween with the Christmas emphasis, I don't think is totally out of line uh, in terms of looking at these scriptures. So if you'll turn with me to... Genesis chapter 3, this is where we're going to start this morning. This is a very familiar passage uh, in our 
corporate reading this morning, uh, responsive reading this morning. We, we read a, a part of the creation narrative um, where it talks about God creating. And, and we ended with that statement, and he saw creation, and it was what? Not just good, very good. Okay, that last statement there in the creation flow, he says it's good, it's good, it's good. He gets to the end and says it's very good. And so uh, it was, it was a, a great experience. Man was able to walk with God in unison, connect with him, to, to understand him, to, to, to live with him, to appreciate him. And to just experience the goodness of, um, of of the bounty that God gave them, you know, you read right there when when God's giving instructions to the man and the woman, He says, "All the trees, all the trees here in the garden, eat freely, bountifully, as much as you want from all, any of them, except for the one. There's one. There's one, and that one represents who's going to, who's going to lead your life." Who's going to be in control? Is it going to be me or is it going to be you? Because that phrase, as we've talked about before, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is it, does not seem to be, at least in my understanding, uh, an impartation of or, or giving of the knowledge of what's good and what's wrong. If, if that's the case, then the command not to do something doesn't make any sense. If they didn't already understand there was some element to wrongness. Okay. So what does it seem to be? It seems to be, the knowledge of what's beneficial and harmful. It's, it's a declaration of, I'm going to decide for myself what's good for me or what's bad for me instead of letting God do that. And that's what they're participating in. That's how they became like God when they ate. That's how they came to understand their vulnerability because they stepped out from underneath God's protection. They ate of this tree that God said not to eat of, and in so doing, they declared, and we have declared ever since then, every sin is rooted in the truth that we think we can do things better than God. And with that motion, with that movement, with that activity, mankind fell. And ever since then, we've been dealing with the consequences. Now, part of the consequences are outlined for us in God's response to the three individuals that were involved in the event. The man the woman, and the serpent. And the serpent um, is is related to us. It's communicated to us as, as one of the, the wiliest of, and all that of all the animals, clever, those sorts of things. Um, but we learn from Revelation chapter 12 that the serpent is in fact Satan. Genesis doesn't tell us that. Genesis doesn't communicate that to us that clearly. But Revelation 12 makes it very clear that the serpent there uh, the, the, the individual that, that's uh, uh, taking possession of the creature or whatever is, in fact, Satan. And it's God's curse upon the serpent and, by extension, Satan that we want to look at this morning here in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. As I read, follow along with me. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And this is the part that we're going to be focusing in on. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. 
in that second verse, verse 15, God reveals that, that there is something, even here in Genesis, we see there is something more to this creature, more to this individual than just an animal, just a serpent. And God is responding to the condition, the reality of humanity coming out of this fall. That whereas before there was unity, there was connection, there was peace, there was joy, there was relationship with God, now <clears throat> there's going to be the struggle for control. There's going to be struggle for control between God and humanity. There's going to be struggle for control between the husband and the wife. There's going to be struggle for control in terms of man's relationship to creation itself. But God didn't create us to exist in that status. God did not create us to exist in a status separated from Him, in a status in an environment to, to where it's just sorrow and grief. God did not, when He starts creating, think, think, man, I'm going to, I'm going to make these creatures, I'm going to make these these individuals in my image, just so they can suffer. That's not His heart. That's not His mind. God created us for relationship with Him. To be in the image of God is to be created in a way that we can relate to Him in a way nothing else in creation can. Yes, the rocks and the trees would cry out in, in glory to God and praise of God, Jesus tells us. The animals themselves in some ways proclaim who God is in, in terms of who He is. But no other part of creation can connect with God the way humanity. We were specially made. And so this, this fallen status that we find ourselves in is, is simply not acceptable to God. It's not a status he's willing to leave us in. It's not a status he looks at and says, eh, okay, you made your choice. What's the saying? You, you made your bed, now lie in it. I never understood that as a punishment. You know, you made your bed, now lie in it. My, my mom always viewed making my bed as a miracle and a wonderful thing. Um, so, um, but, but that's the same. Um, but that's not what God is. That's not where God is at this time. He's what? I got to redeem these people. I got to rescue these people. I got to restore what's been lost. I got to bring back what's been damaged. I don't want life existence without them. I don't want the separation. And so I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a means to renew that relationship. And he gives us the first clues to that here in, in verse 15. This passage has been called in the past, the church fathers, back when, all the church fathers spoke Latin, called this the Proto-Evangelium, which is a fancy way of saying the first gospel. This is the first time we read the gospel in the scriptures. He's going to bruise your head, though you bruise his heel. And we see that hope there. But there's more to this passage than just that. It's more than just a prediction. One of the things I hope to highlight as we go through the series is something that I've highlighted in the past, but I think it's really something we, we, we need to get a hold of, we really need to get a grasp of. That is, 
that the prophecies of the Old Testament relating to Jesus, whether it's his first coming, second coming, whatever they are related to Jesus, they're not there for God to show off his ability to know the future. That's why I prefer, actually, I don't like to call them prophecies. They are, that's not technically incorrect, but I prefer to call them promises. Because prophecy has this mindset of it's in the, it's in the, the awesome or the miraculous of the you saw beforehand, now it's carried out. But a promise, that's a relational reality. When you promise somebody something, okay, if I say to my kids or said back in the day to my kids, we're going to the zoo on Friday, okay, in many ways that's, a, that's what? That's a prophecy, right? I'm predicting an event that's going to carry out in a couple of days. I have just prophesied. Big whoop-de-doo. Okay. But when they look at me and they say, do you promise? And I say, yeah, I promise. The whole exchange now has a totally different feel to it. Yeah, he said we were going, okay, we may, we may not. But the fact that I said I promise has transformed the exchange into, into a relational concept. My dad has promised me something. He has seen this is important to me. He's seen this significant to me, and he wants me to know that I'm important, and so he has made this promise to me. And that's the way I want us to look at and I want us to, to understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. They're not just God saying this is going to happen someday. If we believe God is above time, if we believe that God is omniscient or all-knowing, then that should be a given that he can do that sort of thing. I want us to, to dig into and, and connect, however, on the feature that these are promises. These are relational concepts. This is God saying, you're important to me. I want you to know where this is all going. I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that I have a plan and a purpose for your life. And so as we dig into this passage, it's not just about looking at a cross. It's much bigger, and I hope to be able to demonstrate, demonstrate that here this morning. The first thing I want us to see here is that God tells us that the Savior who's coming the one who's going to rescue us, the one who's going to make all the difference, is in fact one of us. He is the offspring of a woman. He is one of us. When it says here, um, I will put between your offspring and her offspring. Okay. Now, who are the offspring of the serpent, Satan? The offspring of, certain, uh, of, of Satan are, are what? They're lies. Their enmity, their greed, they're the sins that would occur. So far, the only sin that's occurred has been, I can do things better than you. But that's going to do what? That's going to give birth to any number of different sins, different expressions of that, from, from sexual immorality to, to uh, cheating and greed and gossip and all these other things. That one sin is going to give birth to numerous others. That's his offspring. But who is her offspring? The fact that her offspring is a human, is a person, is significant. The writer of Hebrew goes to great length to, to tell us that, that we have a what? We have a high priest that's different. Because he is what? He's descended from heaven, but he's one of us. Tempted in every way, just as we are yet 
without sin. To understand that this promise that God is making, this response that God is giving, is going to come from one of us, is again to see our importance in God's estimation. Like many people over the years, there have been times when I've struggled with self-esteem. You know, am I worthy? I wish this were different about me. I wish that were different about me. I wish I were better at this. I, I, I wish this was true about my life. You know, and, and any number of things can, can come into play there. You know, providing for my family as, as a father and a husband. Um, limit, limitations there. The ability to do my job as a pastor, as a professor there. I mean, these are all things that that challenge us. And, and you have your own challenges. You have your own questions, your own self-esteem. But what I've come to discover over the years and, and looking for answers to that, whether it's reading self-help books or those sorts of things, is, is that the answer to that resides not in my opinion of myself, but God's opinion of me. That God values me. God sees me as someone worthy of dying for. God sees me as someone worthy of, of investing in. God sees me as someone with distinct purpose in this work and in this world and in this life. And because of that, it doesn't matter what my opinion of myself is. The eternal Father, the creator of all things, he has spoken, and that settles it. And so when I see God say, to humanity, to the woman here, your seed, your offspring is going to be part of the solution. I think it's saying something significant about, about how he works and about our value and, and our importance. I'm not going to go start a, a whole new workout here, totally distinct and different from you, and bring that in. I'm going to use you. You made the mistake. I'm going to help you fix that mistake. I'm, I'm going to let you be part of the solution. And there's good advice there in terms of, of parenting, in terms of, of, of your workforce, you know, being a boss and so forth. You know, sometimes, you know, as a parent, and I'm probably guilty of this as anybody, you know, I ask, I ask my kids to do something. And they don't quite meet my expectation of how to do that. And there's a great temptation, and too often I've fallen to it, there's a great temptation to say what? Well, I'm just going to do it then. You, know, you didn't quite do it the way I wanted, so get out of the way. I'm going to do it. Okay. But when I do that, what? Have I taught them anything? I, I, I've simply taught them that if you disappoint Dad, you lose. But when those few times that I've let them, okay, and I've instructed them and I've helped them, okay, this is how to better do it. And I've let them take that journey of discovery. I've seen real growth in them. I've seen real real transformation in them. They're, they're able to, to say, this is mine. I broke it, but I've also fixed it. And I think that's part of what God's doing here. You broke it. You broke this world. 
but I'm going to let you in some ways participate in the fixing of it. Because the one who comes, the one who's coming, the answer here, he is fully man too. Yes, he's fully God. And we'll talk about that in, in the weeks ahead and how wondrous and amazing and awesome that is. But I don't think we, especially as evangelicals as Baptists, I don't think we really struggle with the concept of God, of Jesus being fully God. I think our struggle is really more with that he's fully man, fully human, like us in every way, yet without sin. That's a significant feature for us to be able to connect. That's a significant feature for what God is trying to say in, in this environment and in, in the environment beyond. You get to be part of the solution. The second thing I want us to see that God says here is that he is the embodiment of our suffering. Now, what do I mean by that and where do I get that? Notice it says here, it says you will strike his heel. Now, there is a, um, a feature of this that um, obviously speaks to, the, speaks to the cross. But it can't speak explicitly and obviously to the cross. Because a heel wound in their culture, in our culture, was a wound that was serious but not fatal. Just think about it. If if something happens to your feet, generally speaking, that's not a fatal wound. That's not something that's going to kill you. But it's going to make your life incredibly hard. Okay, because you just can't walk. You know, surgery on your feet, injury to your feet, whatever. And so a heel wound is typically a wound that's serious but not fatal. Now, when you take that to the cross, which is, again, if you're seeing this as the first gospel, you have a problem there because Jesus actually died. What happened on the cross was fatal. He died. And so I think, I think we're probably better reading this not just in, term, not in terms of specific reference to the, to the cross, but in terms of the fact that the serpent, Satan, sin, is going to have its victories over humanity, but they're not going to be final. In other words, I think the passage here is, is meant to not just focus in on the one individual on the cross, but on all of humanity. That sin is going to have its victories. There's going to be times when we fail. There's going to be times when we don't make the best decisions. There's going to be times when we hurt. And that's going to find its ultimate manifestation in what? The cross. So it's leading there. It's pointing to that, and it's going to ultimately be there with the, the crushing of the head. But I think there's it's a bigger picture than that. I think it's a bigger concept than that. Because sin has entered the world, because the fall has taken place, you and I struggle today with sin. We make mistakes, sometimes big mistakes. And those mistakes are costly. Not just in terms of the, the consequences that naturally grow out of them, but just in terms of our relationship with God. We hurt. 
our connection with the God who loves us, with the God who's sending the Son on our behalf. That's a serious matter. Sin is more than just an oops. Sin is more than just a, did I do that? Okay. Sin is an affront to a holy God and a relationship we have with him. And since the fall, we succumb to it, all of us, each and every one of us. And if you're here under the mistaken impression or thought, well, I'm, I'm not that big a sinner, then you don't understand how serious sin is. You don't understand what a big deal it really is. Because even your smallest sin is the sin that sent Jesus to the cross. You don't even understand that. And so sin then gives what? Gives birth to, to suffering. We talked about this last week, that there's different reasons we suffer. Sometimes we suffer for our sin. Sometimes we suffer because of the sin of others. Sometimes we suffer because sin has corrupted the environment, the culture, the reality. But all of them go back to sin. And so when it says, you'll, you'll bruise his heel, I believe that this is a big picture of how sin's going to have these big that's going to culminate in the cross, the death of Jesus. That will be a response to this event, to this act. And that's important because, again, just as with the fact that he's human, he, he does understand our experience. And when he's on the cross and he's dying for our sins... Scripture says our sins are placed upon him. There's what? There's that connection. He is the embodiment of everything we've experienced too. Just think about Jesus' life. Okay, he grew up in a home in a very small community in Nazareth. Nazareth in those days was, was itty-bitty. Just a backwater little village with just probably just a couple dozen people in it. Not big at all. And everybody knew his mama got pregnant before they got married. Everybody knew that. Simple math told them that. And so imagine Jesus growing up in that environment. Son of God. Miraculous birth. Miraculous conception. Nobody did anything wrong in his conception, and yet he's what? He's going to grow up hearing that. Ah, oh, look at that. That's, that's Mary's boy. <laughs> yeah, we, we know how he came about, don't we? And he probably had those words that we use for illegitimate children applied to him numerous times in his life. Growing up in Nazareth, he grew up in poverty. There weren't any rich folk in Nazareth. He understood probably what it meant to be hungry. We also get indications just in terms of how things played out that his father probably died when he was fairly young. That's why Joseph is nowhere to be seen in his ministry time. He was probably already dead. So he lost his father, his earthly father at a young age. He experienced the consequences of sin, though he himself never did sin. 
He understands our hurt. He understands our suffering. He has experienced those things, the consequences of other people's decisions, other people's attitudes. He bare, he bore the weight of sin in his life and in his experience. Which makes the next statement all the more beautiful and powerful. That he is the solution to our biggest problem. He will strike or crush your head. What a powerful, what a powerful statement of the cross, of the resurrection. That in that moment, in that time, he came and he responded to our deepest need, our biggest problem. And he did it with power, with majesty. Though he'd grown up in a little backwater town, the king of kings. Though he died a thief's death, a criminal's death, he's the holy one of Israel. Though he was betrayed, abandoned by his friends, he's the Lord that brings all nations together around his throne. He is the God who offers us a solution. And right here at the very start, God the Father makes that promise. You made a mistake. You've stepped away from me. But I am resolved to see our relationship restored. And I'm going to let you participate in that. I'm going to show you that I understand what you're going through. But at the end of the day, it's my power, it's my majesty, it's my holiness that's going to bring the solution when I crush Satan's head. And that's the power we live in. That's the power that's available to you and me today. The power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is a power that's available to you to live a life of commitment, a life of relationship and connection the God who loves you. So here at the start of this journey, looking at the promise. And that promise is Jesus. Looking at how Scripture reveals him, I ask you, where are you in relationship to that promise? Where are you in your connection with God? Do you know that you have a relationship with him? Do you understand what that means and what that looks like? Oh, you're not going to understand everything about it. There's still things about God that I'm discovering. I'm 45 years into my walk with him. Yes, I was saved when I was eight, so math, 45 years. Okay. I'm 45 years into my walk with him. And I'm still discovering new things every day. That's how big and awesome our God is. So you're not going to understand everything, but do you understand enough to know that he wants a relationship with you. That he's done everything that's necessary for that relationship to exist. And that he invites you to participate 
in this moment, in this time, in this transformation by simply accepting His grace, His goodness, His power. And beginning that journey of a lifetime, a walk with a God who loves you. It starts right here, right after the fall. It continues to this day with God's resolve to see those who are lost found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of your son. That though we didn't deserve him, and we still don't, that you have determined us to be worth such a gift. God, that blows my mind. And I'm so thankful to you. And I pray that every person in this room has experienced the transformative work of your grace in their life, that they've responded and that they understand their relationship, understand who they are and who they were made to be. God, I pray that you use this time of response just to help us to to be obedient in however you lead us. We praise you and we thank you.